It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Kennedy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, July 17th, 2023. I'm Mike Emanuel. There is political fallout following FBI Director Christopher Wray's testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, with some leading Republicans blasting Wray and the FBI for alleged censorship. His agency and the people directly beneath him have presided over this, this program to suppress disfavored conservative speech and blatantly ignore the First Amendment rights of the American citizens. I'm Chris Foster. The Women's World Cup soccer tournament's coming up. It'll be three straight if Team USA wins again. There's 32 teams, and the biggest storyline going into it is USA is trying to go for a three-peat. So no team on the, the men or women's side has ever won three World Cups in a row. They're trying to add that fifth star to the jersey. We're speaking with former team member Carly Lloyd and men's team veteran Alexi Lawless. And I'm Mark Thiessen. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. An explosive hearing on Capitol Hill when FBI Director Christopher Wray was on the hot seat before the House Judiciary Committee. Wray tried to convince skeptical Republicans that the Bureau is not unfair to conservatives. I would disagree with your characterization of the FBI and certainly your description of my own approach. Uh, The idea that I'm biased against conservatives uh, seems somewhat insane to me. George Washington University law professor and Fox News contributor Jonathan Turley criticized Ray's performance on Capitol Hill. He kept on saying, you know, I was, I'm not familiar with that particular allegation. I haven't seen that particular letter. These are things that have been in the media for months. And it's the same type of evasion. He could have answered some of these questions, and he just chose not to. So the question is, what is Congress going to do about it? There's also concern among conservatives about censorship of their views on social media. A point Fox News White House correspondent Jackie Heinrich made with White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Can you just respond to the judge's accusation that each topic suppressed by the administration was a conservative view? He had a pretty strong statement. The U.S. government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian Ministry of Truth. Can you respond to that? I'm just not going to respond to the attorney general, the judge. Uh, I'll let the Department of Justice do that. As for Director Ray, many Republicans are surprised by his performance as he was nominated by former President Trump. We were surprised that he was either unwilling or unable to provide answers that are long overdue and should be quite simple for him. He's the director of the largest and most important law enforcement agency in the country. Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson is vice chairman of the House Republican Conference. And yet on his watch, there is this pattern of corruption now that has drawn the nation's attention and has led to the loss of faith in that institution. It is alarming to all of us. And and he was, I think, at the hearing, rather evasive and defiant. And we are very frustrated by it. One of the main allegations facing Director Ray and his leadership of the FBI was the alleged censoring of social media, which was supported by a 155-page court opinion supporting the notion that the FBI had indeed silenced and deleted social media posts from conservatives regarding COVID-19, elections, and voting. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what was in the court opinion and how it backed House Republicans' arguments? Yes, the, the court uh, opinion is is quite explosive. It's 155 pages, the basis for an issuance of a preliminary injunction by the federal district court. And in the court's words, not, not House Republicans, but in the, the words of the judge, he says the FBI and the DOJ and other Biden administration agencies have been directly involved in, in what is noted to be, quote, arguably the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. And, and the court ordered the White House, DOJ, FBI, all these others to, to stop colluding with and coercing the social media companies to suppress Americans' free speech. And, and specifically what the evidence in the case shows is it was conservative speech that was targeted. The FBI agents and, and their field offices were meeting directly and regularly with the platforms to pull down disfavored speech. It is a blatant violation of the First Amendment. When you and other lawmakers confronted him with this evidence, he shut it down as being altogether false. Did you think beforehand that he would completely deny all allegations, or did it catch you off guard that even in light of 155 pages, he still denied any part in social media censorship? It was quite surprising to me, uh, to be very honest. The court was very specific in pointing out the evidence that it had this this seeming, this is the court's words, this seemingly unrelenting pressure by the FBI and the other defendants had the intended result of suppressing millions of protected free speech postings by American citizens. And the court gives an example of one result that millions of the people in this country did not hear of the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to the November mm -hmm. 3rd, 2020 election. Well, when I asked the director about that, he clearly gave answers uh, under oath that are demonstrably untrue. He, he testified that the FBI censored only election disinformation, quote unquote, generated from hostile foreign adversaries. But in the court opinion, the court specifically affirms the evidence in the case shows the FBI made no attempt to distinguish whether those reports of election disinformation were American or foreign. And, and I, I just found it stunning that he sat there and provided answers that we can we can clearly show are untrue. During the hearing, Director Ray said, quote, the idea that I am biased against conservatives seems somewhat insane to me, given my own personal background. Uh, Director Ray was chosen for the job by former President Trump and was backed by Senate Republicans. Did you initially support the idea of Ray taking this position? And what do you think happened to cause this opposition between the FBI and conservatives when it was thought that Ray himself was part of the party? Well, when he was initially appointed, of course, we took uh, it at face value. He seemed to be highly qualified, and we, we were hopeful that he could uh, clean up some of the disarray in the agency. But as President Trump uh, told Maria Bartiromo on Sunday Morning Futures, uh, he regrets that decision now. Uh, President Trump says that uh, he was uh, pushed very heavily by Chris Christie, and now he sees that was an error. I don't know where Christopher Ray personally stands. He claims to be a conservative. But what is insane is that his agency and the people directly beneath him have presided over this this program to suppress disfavored conservative speech and blatantly ignore the First Amendment rights of the American citizens. We want to make sure that the Department of Justice is following the law and administering it in a fair way. Yeah, that is the problem. The people's faith in our institutions is at an all time low. And this is a great concern to all of us. It makes you wonder, is it the leadership around him at the FBI that maybe was 
you know, working in this way, or or I, it just makes you wonder what's going on there, and and what needs to change to just try to make it more balanced. Well, the problem is in Washington and many of these federal agencies, you have layers of bureaucrats and and career persons who have been in these these positions, and uh, sometimes they do their own bidding. I mean, we know that mm-hmm. the special uh, counsel John Durham. Uh, testified just a month ago at, at our Judiciary Committee that uh, they, they should never have launched the, the bogus Trump-Russia investigation. And he reluctantly concluded that the FBI, his quote, failed to uphold its mission of strict fidelity to the law. So I think there is some institutional rot. We do believe that at the very top levels of the agency, I think there are many noble patriotic FBI field agents out doing fantastic work. But I, I think the leadership is broken, and that's why we have to demand change, reform, and accountability. Amidst all of this, there was also a ruling made earlier last week that prohibits further communication between federal agencies like the FBI and social media companies. Your thought on this, and do you believe Americans might see the information in posts that they, you know, see on their social media changing at all? Well, we we had some hope for that. That was the result of that 155-page court opinion uh, that Mm -hmm. came out of the state of Louisiana. Uh, the, the judge issued a preliminary injunction because he was so alarmed by the striking uh, ignorance of the First Amendment. Uh, and But then it was appealed by the Biden administration to the federal appellate circuit, the Fifth Circuit, and they have, at least on a temporary basis, stayed that injunction. And so what that means for everyone in layman's terms is that their pattern will continue. And it is it is just a staggering fact that the administration is going into federal court to argue that they have the right to censor what they deem to be disinformation. And anyone who watched the hearing knows the director of the FBI himself cannot define what that amorphous term is. What we do know and what the court documented in its in its long opinion is that over the last several years, we know that they suppressed information about topics like the Hunter Biden laptop, the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origin, the effectiveness of, of the lockdowns. I mean, everything about election integrity, even jokes about President Biden were pulled off of the Internet because they were they were posted there by conservative sources. It, it's really a, a stunning thing. And we'll never know the full effect that that has had uh, upon election outcomes in our, our society at large. To that point, I mean, it's clearly more than the FBI, because if you remember during COVID-19, you know, anybody who posted about questioning masks or questioning vaccination, they got wiped out by the social media companies. And so it makes you wonder where it ends. And do you need to pull up Health and Human Services and other agencies before your committee to get to the bottom of it? Well, we we would certainly like to. And we have an oversight responsibility in Congress that we're taking very seriously, as everyone can see. But in in the the preliminary matter in the federal court case, they did name HHS, CDC, many of these agencies because it was sort of a, a whole of government approach under the Biden administration that is now being referred to as the censorship industrial complex. I mean, this is frightening stuff. This is what the founders of our country warned against they they knew that if you could control the flow of information it would lead us right back into tyranny and that's why this is so serious that's why it, it merits everyone's attention and that's why we have to bring about reform in whatever form that takes place do you believe the hearing with director ray was productive and what else do you think needs to be done to address this issue moving forward <clears throat> well i do think the hearing was productive in that it has drawn a lot of attention to this uh, crisis i believe we have a a direct assault on the liberty of the American people. And I, it's being done 
uh, by some of our most powerful federal agencies. Uh, people are beginning to take notice of this, and they realize that things that they have believed to be true actually are. And sometimes the truth that we uncover is even worse than we thought. So what we'll be doing in the House, you know, we have limited authority on over these agencies. We have oversight. But one very important power that we have is the power of the purse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the FBI, for example, is requesting a $4 billion new headquarters, uh, the shiny, glittery new optic they want. Well, you know, I and others believe they do not deserve that until they can prove to us that they will uphold the most fundamental constitutional rights of the people that they are supposed to be protecting and serving. The other thing I'm curious about today is you're our vice chairman of the House Republican Conference with a very narrow majority. I'm curious, how's it going in terms of leading the majority when you really don't have much margin for error? Well, I think our majority has surprised a lot of people. A lot of the pundits, of course, said that we were doomed to failure. We would never be able to to hold the team together. But so far, so good. We've uh, really surprised a lot of people and, and gotten some big things done. You know, the National Defense Authorization Act just this past week was a perfect example of that. And uh, the reason we were able to accomplish that is we had a lot of communication, a lot of thoughtful deliberation behind the scenes. We got people all across the spectrum in our conference together on the on the big items. And we passed what I believe is, is a really, really strong bill. We'll see what happens in the Senate. Uh, but but so far, so good. Our, our team understands the stakes are so high and uh, we don't have time for petty politics. We've got to get the job done. And so I, I think I've been very encouraged by what's developed. And the clock ticking toward August recess. What do you need to get done between now and lawmakers leaving town for for the holidays? Well, we have a busy couple of weeks ahead of us. Uh, a lot of work is being done in earnest on the appropriations process. We have 12 of those bills to pass, of course, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a short window before the end of September. And so a lot of attention is being paid to that right now. And, and of course, there's lots of opinions about uh, many of those policy uh, matters as well. So that's going to, I think, take a lot of our attention. And of course, we have some more big uh, oversight hearings and investigations going forward the next two weeks as well. RFK Jr. is coming to testify before the House Judiciary Committee about his experiences with censorship. And uh, and we have the IRS whistleblowers coming before the Oversight Committee. So there'll be lots of headlines to follow um, here in the, in the coming days. Should be fascinating. We will follow it all. The Vice Chairman of the House Republican Conference, Congressman Mike Johnson of the great state of Louisiana, thank you so much for your time. Safe travel, sir. Thank you, my friend. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is Mark Thiessen with your Fox News commentary coming up. The Women's World Cup soccer tournament starts Thursday with games being played this time in Australia and New Zealand. The first official Women's World Cup was played in Germany in 1991. Team USA won that one and three more since in 99, 2015, and 2019. I believe that we just won! Carly Lloyd scored three goals in the 2019 tournament. It feels great to be a world champion. She's retired now, one of several former Team USA players, including Alexi Lawless, at this year's World Cup as analyst for Fox Sports. Well, as I've played in four World Cups prior to this, 
This, in my opinion, is going to be the biggest, the best, the most competitive. There's 32 teams. And the biggest storyline going into it is USA is trying to go for a three-peat. So no team on the, the men or women's side has ever won three World Cups in a row. They're trying to add that fifth star to the jersey. So it's going to be incredible. I mean, there's so much pressure, but it's uh, exciting as well. Is there a risk of overconfidence or that just doesn't come into play? I think so. I think that you can never go into something overly confident because you will soon be humbled, especially at a World Cup. Every team brings their best team uh, from the mentality, uh, physicality. Everybody's buttoned up. So you really have to go in there almost playing as if you're an underdog. But as we've gone into every tournament for the U.S., they're usually the favorites going into it, um, number one team in the world going into it. And so there's always that pressure. But as the U.S. has always done, they've, they've risen to that pressure of being able to to win. Uh, 32 teams. Alexi, briefly, if you can, explain the format. As Carly mentioned, there is the uh, the possibility of history. Uh, there will be history no matter what because this is the biggest Women's World Cup that we've ever had with 32 teams, eight groups of four. You play uh, the other three teams in your group uh, as a Men's World Cup or uh, any World Cups that we have seen, and then you go on around to 16 and, uh, and so on. You know, for the U.S., when it comes to their group uh, with Vietnam and the Netherlands and Portugal, let's be honest, they should not only beat, but beat handily uh, Vietnam and Portugal. Netherlands, we remember from the last World Cup and the final, who they beat in the final, that's going to be a big game. And it's important in your group stage to make sure not only that you win, but you score a lot of goals, especially if it comes down to goal differential. And so in the last World Cup, there was a lot of uh, hoopla made uh, about the amount of goals that were scored. This is a World Cup, all right? This isn't about charity. This is about winning games and you score and you keep scoring, especially when there's a competitive advantage to scoring. So uh, look look for a lot of goals. Yeah, so run it up. I mean, this this isn't like a high school game where eh, we're up by five let's play the let's play the subs and let them have a good time last world cup when they scored a lot of goals it was the absolute right thing to do and this world cup if and when they score a lot of goals nobody should be complaining nobody should be yelling and screaming because again this is a competition you are there to win and you score as many goals as you possibly can any players any teams you two are particularly looking forward to covering England right now is feeling good. They are the European champions. They want the opportunity not only to win a World Cup, but in the process, knock off England. And it's it's not just you know England as a team. England as a soccer culture obviously has incredible history, but England as a women's soccer culture, they've been putting more resources and more energy and more time and more money into it, and it's translated into a very, very good team. And so they smell blood. And as you know, Carly said, the U.S. is not an underdog. They will be the favorite and people will want to knock them down. So I'm really interested to see a team like England right now that's in such a good moment if they can translate it to the World Cup. Because it's one thing to be champions of Europe. It's another thing to be champions of the world. Uh, Carly, you're obviously off the pitch this time. Um, Who are your old teammates that you're happy to see again that people should be looking forward to seeing again? And who are some of the kids? Well, I think, you know, obviously a devastating blow to the U.S. with Mallory Swanson. She was, you know, playing really well, and I was really excited to see her growth. I think, you know, just from a mental perspective, she was, you know, really, really going to be ready for that tournament. So she won't be there. But you have the likes of Trinity Rodman, who, young, up-and-coming player who's been doing really well in the NWSL, Sophia Smith, who's also been doing well, was MVP last year of the NWSL, Naomi Gurma, center back who's stepped in and just so calm, cool, collected and just playing with such ease at 
such a young age and the inexperience that she's had. But, you know, I think it's going to be just really an amazing World Cup because there's so many new teams that are just going to be playing for the first time. You've got a team like Ireland, who I'm actually excited to watch a player on that team, Denise Sullivan, who's just been incredible in the NWSL. And they're going to be a tough team to beat. And you can't discount Australia either. I know they've had some up and downs kind of coming into the tournament, but they're playing on home soil and uh, they're going to be fired up as well. So The games in New Zealand and Australia, obviously a ridiculous time difference. You can't accommodate 32 different nations and their viewing habits. The first three USA games are at 9 p.m., 9 p.m. and then 3 a.m. And then you go from there. Are players there long enough to get acclimated before the games start? Yeah, that's not going to be a problem for the players. And let's be honest, we have had World Cups in the past, whether it's been in Asia or different places, where if you love the game, you accommodate it. You accommodate it as a player in terms of adjusting to going to a different country, going to a different time zone. And as fans, we figure it out. And part of the fun at times with the World Cup is sometimes at some strange hours. Like you said, there's going to be plenty of primetime games, and they're going to be somewhere, yeah, you got to make an effort. Yeah. But and those times I gave are Eastern, by the way. So the yes. Exactly. Games in the East or six in the exactly. Or so there'll be look, there'll be some late nights or early mornings, depending on how you look at it or where you are. But you know, I think it's worth it getting up and watching a great tournament like this, yeah. and obviously watching your home uh, US team. And weather, I guess, sort of like spring fall here, maybe sixties, maybe some rain. It's cold there. I mean, it's it, it's their winter over yeah. there in Australia and New Zealand. Not freezing cold. It's actually great playing weather. Yeah, you're not going to be sweating your know you know what off. Yeah, Carly, the women's national team has been far more successful than the men's team. Obviously, why do you think? pro women's soccer hasn't taken off here like the men's game has is it a tv thing what is it what would you, and what would you what would you suggest to take that game off a little more you know i just think it's different i think from a cultural standpoint you know overseas you know european soccer it, that's the sport that they all grew up with i mean when they're just beginning walking they have a soccer ball by their feet we have multiple sports a lot of those sports take a uh, precedent you've got football you've got basketball baseball i mean all sorts of sports that that we're competing against. But I think, you know, we're in our third league, professional league in the United States, the NWSL now, uh, in its 11th season. And it's now being treated uh, as an investment. It's no longer mom and pop who just want to come in and they really want to own a soccer team and have some fun and maybe their daughters play. This is a business. And the teams that are now approaching it like a business are seeing success on that side. So I think that it's booming right now, currently, and what's really exciting is, obviously, we have the World Cup this summer. The NWSL's been doing really well, but 2026 for the Men's World Cup mm-hmm. is coming. So that wave of, of just riding this you know, amazing soccer boom in the U.S. is, is just going to keep growing and growing, but I think... Uh, you know, it's it's getting there. I mean, overseas, you're you're seeing the league in England doing really well and gaining more attention. But it, it ultimately comes down to money, support, investment and, you know, broadcasting. Well, I mean, speaking of it being a business, speaking of broadcasting, live TV is one of the few things keeping TV going. And some of that now isn't on broadcast. You've got the Premier League on Peacock. You've got the Apple's MLS deal and Lionel Messi coming to Miami. I, I assume that that's as much of an Apple deal as it is a soccer deal mm-hmm. for him. You get shows like Welcome to Wrexham, documentary show. 
TV and soccer, I guess, are, they help each other. Soccer is not just a sport, it's content. It is, but the interesting thing is when people come and visit us here in the U.S., they are amazed at the amount of soccer that we are able to access. And so it means it's, for example, for, for MLS, for Major League Soccer, MLS's problem isn't that there aren't soccer fans in the U.S. It's that there are not enough MLS fans. And so trying to, you know, get that market that is out there into the soccer tent or into the MLS tent. That's what it's always been about year, uh, year after year after year. But as you know, there are soccer people out there and they wake up in the morning and they watch their, their EPL. And hopefully they continue on and they watch NWSL, they watch MLS, they watch USL and they have their domestic affiliations. Right. But they also have this international part that is you know just kind of part of what American soccer fans are. It's wonderful because there is a love of soccer and it just continues to grow, but it also makes it challenging in terms of just focusing in on getting as many people in for one league uh, at a time. I crowdsourced this just a little bit. I asked some soccer fan friends if they had any questions for you guys. Is there a team for both of you, a team or a player that just had your number that you remember is just tough to beat, maybe on paper they shouldn't have been, but uh, what is it about this team or this player that you just can't get through? I will say in general, so I'm, I'm six foot four and as is expected, the, the lower center of gravity types of players always gave me problems. I could, you know, if it was just a physical back and forth, I could deal with that. It's the little guys that run and able to shift their weight. And so whether it was a, a Romario who used to play for Brazil or a Gianfranco Zola who used to play for Italy, these guys would drive me crazy because they are so quick and they're able to shift their weight and their direction so quickly that for a bigger guy like me, that's where the problems came. The, the, the big tall guys are the ones that wanted to get all physical. I could I could do that all day. Carly, favorite clutch goal or a miss that still bugs you? I'll go with the miss, so I end on the good one. The miss, <laughs> I mean, 20, 2011 World Cup final, I missed a PK. Not only missed it, but sailed it pretty high over the bar. But I learned my lesson. I learned from that failure, that blip. Um, and then I would probably say most, most memorable is probably 2015 World Cup final, um, my goal for midfield. Women's World Cup on Fox. Coverage starts July 20th. Games go on for a month. Uh, first game for Team USA, July 21st against Vietnam. Alexi Lawless, Carly Lloyd, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, the new Fox News primetime lineup kicks off with Laura Ingram at 7 p.m. Eastern, followed by Jesse Waters primetime, Sean Hannity at 9 Eastern, and Gutfeld capping off the night now an hour earlier. Tuesday, Israeli Prime Minister Isaac Herzog will visit the White House for a meeting reaffirming the United States' commitment to Israeli security. Thursday, the FIFA Women's World Cup begins. The U.S. women's team is heavily favored to win a record third consecutive title at the competition being hosted by Australia and New Zealand. The 32-team action will air exclusively on Fox Networks and Fox Sports. Friday, two highly anticipated films hitting the big screen. That includes the Barbie movie and Christopher Nolan's historical drama Oppenheimer, both capping off a blockbuster summer movie season, which also saw new installments of the Mission Impossible and Fast and Furious franchises. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Tom Graham, Fox News.
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Mark Thiessen. Mark Thiessen. What's on your mind? Democrats are panicking over no labels. The bipartisan group laying the groundwork for an independent unity ticket as an insurance policy if Donald Trump wins the GOP nomination. Democrats complain that no labels would bleed support from President Biden without winning Republican votes, thus handing the presidency to Trump. In fact, no labels can win Republican support, but only if it nominates the right candidates. To be sure, a successful third-party ticket has been a quadrennial fantasy. And it's true that in normal times, third-party candidates are nothing more than spoilers. But these are not normal times. Overwhelming majorities of Americans say they do not want a Trump-Biden rematch. A Harris X poll for no labels, which surveyed more than 26,000 registered voters in all 50 states, found that 69% don't want Biden to run again and 62% don't want Trump to run again. That level of dissatisfaction with the major party's top contenders is virtually without precedent. If the system produces a Trump-Biden rematch anyway, as seems increasingly likely, then Republicans and Democrats who don't like their choices have no safe harbor on the other side. Most Republicans won't pull the lever for Biden, who they consider the most catastrophic president since Jimmy Carter. And most Democrats certainly won't vote for Trump, who they say belongs in prison rather than in the Oval Office. If you think that Biden is incompetent and Trump is unfit, as millions do, you have nowhere to go. Enter No Labels, which says it could offer these voters the safe harbor that they are looking for. A whopping 59% of respondents told Harris X that, if faced with a Trump-Biden rematch, they would consider a moderate independent ticket including 59% of Democrats, 53% of Republicans, and 70% of independents. In other words, no label starts out with a ceiling of potential bipartisan support more than 20 points higher than the ceiling for Ross Perot in 1992, who never polled above 38%. But without names at the head of the tickets, these numbers demonstrate only a yearning for an alternative. To translate that desire into votes, no labels needs candidates who can win actual support from voters of both parties. If it nominates Senator Joe Manchin for president, a possibility Manchin does not discount, and then selects a Republican of similar stature as his running mate, no labels could put forward the first serious, credible third-party ticket in modern times. Unlike Evan McNullen, Jill Stein, or even Perot, Manchin is a sitting senator and a former governor with a national profile and a record of accomplishment. In different times, he could credibly be the Democratic Party's presidential nominee. If the worry is that no labels can't draw Republican votes, then the solution is simple. Put a real Republican on the ticket for vice president, a full-spectrum conservative who in normal times could serve on a GOP ticket, which means it can't be someone from the never-Trump wing or a pro-choice Republican who would have no shot at ever winning his party's presidential nomination. With its Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court took the abortion issue out of federal hands and sent it to the states. Let's be clear. A no-labels ticket should not be necessary. Right now, the Republican field offers an embarrassment of riches. Almost any serious GOP contender except Trump could crush Biden, who is one of the least popular presidents in the history of presidential polling. If the GOP squanders that opportunity and nominates Trump, many Republicans will face an agonizing choice in 2024. No labels could offer them a centrist alternative and give Americans a second chance for the unity and bipartisanship they thought they were voting for when they voted for Biden in 2020. Just as 2016 gave us a populist uprising, 2024 could give us the revenge of the great American middle and a bridge back to normalcy, sanity, and moderation. I'm Mark Teeson. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.